Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? All right. You guys sound like you're ready for Scripture. We are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning that I am very excited about. I've been chomping at the bit to begin um, because we are going to spend time in a significant passage of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. These are some of the most transformative, grounding, clarifying words of Jesus that if you and I are intent to follow Jesus, it is absolutely, absolutely impossible to do so apart from wrestling with these words. They're that seminal. They're that central. And so I want to encourage you to do a few things during this sermon series. I know this might sound a bit odd or old school, but I think it'd be a lot of fun. Um, during this series, would you be so kind, if you have one, bring a physical Bible with you to church. You're like, oh, wow, we're going real old school. Yes. Um, like, literally, there's these things called books. They were amazing. They changed civilization. They still make them. Um, let's, if you have one, bring, and let's open Scripture. Let's fill this room with the sound of those very thin papers uh, flapping in the wind. Um, and because we're going to spend time in this text for the next couple weeks and hear Jesus speak to us. And so the title of this sermon series is Life as it Should Be. Life as it Should Be. Because in these words that we're going to process with Jesus, we get an image, a glimpse of not how life is, but rather life as it should be. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, Lord, what lays before us today and for the next several weeks as we come with humble, open hearts to your voice. We want you to speak to us. We want to hear your voice in the deep recesses of our heart. We need truth where lies are. We need light where darkness grips us. We need your transformative grace. So, Lord, we pray you would meet us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus, we pray. May we grow in our love and our affection for you, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, if you watch the news or just catch up with friends, it becomes very, very clear, very fast that the world as we know it 
is not being experienced the way it was created to be. Our existence is riddled with brokenness all around us. And deep down inside, we long for a world that we don't see every single day, a world that doesn't exist through man-made mechanisms. And we, we find ourselves trapped in this cycle that perpetuates brokenness on all levels. But what if the question that I think we should wrestle with is what if our lives could be totally different? What if we don't have to settle for the world as it is? What if there's a different way that we could live in this world, experience this world, and be present in it? And toward that end, we see that Jesus meets us in this sermon, and it has the potential, the possibility to exchange the broken relationships, the greed, the anxiety, the poverty of our world for a world that's marked by beauty, goodness, and love. That what he lays out for us in this sermon is an alternate way of living, an alternate life that is available to us through grace, that's transformed by him, that's anchored in who he is. And in this text, it's interesting that this sermon that Jesus delivers over these next several chapters in Matthew, we're told that he is speaking to his disciples. That's a very important distinction. One of the key things, key principles in any kind of communication is know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Your message is shaped by who you're talking to. You talk differently depending on who you're speaking with. And so what we see in Matthew's Gospels over these next few chapters, this is insider language. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the world. He's not speaking to people who don't follow him. Now, can the world hear these statements and be inspired and, 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 and say, wow, that's amazing. I, I resonate with that. I would love for our world to have these attributes. Absolutely. In fact, that's what the world has done for so long with Jesus. They admire Jesus. They, they respect him as a philosopher, as a thinker, potentially as a moral example, but they don't realize and don't profess and come to the place of faith that he's so much more than just a philosopher or a moral example. He is a king, the king of kings, our Messiah, our Savior. And in this text, he outlines for us a life of following him and gives us the granular details of what a life in pursuit a student of him, what should show up in our lives if he is the one we're modeling our life after? And what's interesting is the way Matthew, the writer of this gospel, a man who followed Jesus, it very much mirrors and patterns the way this book flows to the life of the people of Israel. Because in the life of Israel, as a nation, as soon as they were freed from Egypt and they crossed the waters of the Red Sea, then God gave them his commandments. In other words, he taught them this is how life should be. This is how you are to live your life. And similarly, Jesus, after he rises from the waters of baptism, he calls his disciples onto a mount and begins to teach them life as it should be. And he specifically teaches his followers. Now, when you go into this text and actually reference different commentators and scholars, it's, it's very fascinating that there's so many different opinions. And so some scholars look at these, these blessings. It's called the Beatitudes. 
They look at these blessings that Jesus confers almost as, some say that they, they can be understood as ethical duties. Some say these actually not so much ethical duties or they should be emotional postures that we have, emotional uh, attitudes. But actually, what most commentators and scholars agree on is that those views don't fully add up. Here's why. Because to look at these Beatitudes as the pathway to happiness, or if you do X, you're going to get Y, or this is how you should live, kind of like a moralistic pathway for us, doesn't add up because happiness is such a subjective thing. Have you noticed that what makes you happy doesn't make everybody else happy? Isn't that a shocker? Isn't that a shocker that not everybody likes the shows you like or, or want to eat at the same restaurants? I mean, the nerve of people for having divergent opinions. But that's the reality. More, everybody has their own internal compass of what makes them happy. But Jesus actually says, you are blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, he is conferring blessings objectively. This is not subjective. This is not for you to interpret if you are blessed. He's saying you are blessed. And so this is more than just a recommendation for an attitude we should take on or behaviors. This is describing the nuances, the details of what a life that follows Jesus should look like. And the blessings that God confers as we follow him. So here's my task for the next few moments. I am going to give you essentially a tasting menu experience of the Beatitudes. This will be very quick, bite-sized portions Hopefully you chew on it, you say, oh, that's good. Or some of these you'll chew on and say, ooh, man, that's convicting. Um, some of these will, you'll, will, you'll be inspired. Others you'll be kind of like, oh, I don't know, that's really, really rough and tough. What is he actually saying? And at the end, we're going to land at the very first blessing. We're going to skip the first beatitude and begin with the second one. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. What an incredible promise. Now this promise is twofold. There is a promise that he extends for every person who experiences grief and loss and pain. The promise he extends is one of comfort. Now we have to understand all of these blessings are best viewed in light of eternity. In other words, some of these blessings don't show up on this side of heaven. And so if you're looking to measure these things concretely, the way we measure other things, it may not always register, it may not always show up, but the promise is that this will be delivered to you, that one day you will be comforted, one day you will experience lightness for your pain. This is a promise that Jesus makes, and we can be assured of him delivering that promise because of what he did when he rose from the dead. When he declared that death and sin and brokenness would not have the final word, it, it declared a brand new day for all of us, a day that says you and I do not have to be marked in a final way by despair, by pain, by loss. 
That's an incredible promise that Jesus makes that no matter what you endure in this life, he refuses for that to be the label you carry. And he promises that comfort will come. But one aspect of comfort that's associated with mourning here that can definitely be experienced in this life, that is when you and I actually mourn over the brokenness of our world. The promise of being comforted is not just for personal grief and loss. The promise of being comforted is when you and I mourn over the state of our world. Psalm 119, verse 136 says, I shed streams of tears because people do not keep your laws. All around us, there are so many instances that should pierce our hearts and bring us to a place of sorrowful prayer and mourning as we look at the many instances where people violate God's law and the havoc that that causes in our lives. See, when you and I understand God's love and righteousness, when we understand His holiness, when we experience the effects of sin in our nation, in our city, in the systems all around us, interpersonally, it should bring us grief. If you and I are not saddened by the state of the world, that's something to actually be concerned with. Because that might indicate that we're so detached. We stop feeling. We stop caring. But Jesus says, those who mourn shall be comforted. But he moves further. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, there's a attribute of a disciple of Jesus that's probably misunderstood the most, it's meekness. Because a lot of times we equate meekness with almost allowing ourselves to become a victim to bullies, that we just become a doormat and we let people mistreat us on, on, unendingly. But actually, meekness is not you taking a posture of weakness, but meekness is someone who is strong, who declines to dominate. To be meek is to recognize that you have power, you have volition, you have the capacity to act in so many situations that you could have the last word, you could uh, you know, take advantage, you could assert yourself, you could come out the winner in so many situations, but meekness is Choosing to not assert yourself above others, even when you could. To be meek is to not insist on your own way. And it's one of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I bet if you sit and pause for long enough, you could think of so many situations that meekness would have helped a great deal. A friend of mine recently shared a story. He was at a uh, lacrosse game somewhere deep in Jersey, because that's where lacrosse should be at, in Jersey. Has no business in the inner city, I kid. And so he was in the stands, and his wife was, had an umbrella, and she was kind of covering uh, the sun. And, and so she's very, very fair. But someone in the back 
made a comment, and he heard it, something like, oh, these people bringing their umbrellas, I can't see. A switch flipped in the dude, and he turned around, he said, that's my wife you're talking about. You better get her name out your mouth. And, oh, oh, this guy's like a tax-paying dude, you know, like real normal, like not aggressive. Something switched there, and it almost went to DEFCON 5. Like, it, like a brawl almost happened at the lacrosse game, y'all. That's where peace and love and tranquility should flourish. But what happened in that moment? He didn't choose meekness. He didn't choose to let it go to not assert himself. This is an invitation by Jesus that often you and I are in situations where we have power and he calls us to lay it down. And in laying it down, we become empathetic to the powerless. We begin to understand what it might feel like to lack a voice when we choose to not assert ourselves. How many could say, man, that's hard. That, that's tough. This is not easy. Please, Jesus, change the subject. This is tough stuff that you're talking to us about. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus, next beatitude, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Whew. When in the original language, when it says to hunger and thirst, it communicates a sense of intense longing. How many have ever heard someone, or maybe you've said it, hey, come on, let's go get something to eat. I'm starving. Ever heard somebody say that? Very few people are actually really starving in the West, in New York City, probably in our circles, very few people, but, but we act like the slight discomfort. I'm starving. No, Jesus says actually there's a state of being that he confers a blessing on, and that state of being is to be starving after righteousness. To actually long with pain. You want it so bad. You think about it daily. Jesus says he wants you to think about righteousness daily. Think about some of the things that occupy our minds daily. If, if you were to able to look at the algorithm of your searches and your screen time, it would actually give you a report card of what you think about daily. Jesus says, I want righteousness to be on your mind daily, to obsess over it, to, it to, for it to be like food and water, that without it you feel like you can't live. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly convicting to actually hear and process that there's levels of hunger and desire for God. And this is describing a state of hunger that often we don't find ourselves in. The other day I had this convicting experience. I lost my AirPods. How many have ever had that great experience? You're about to leave and you can't find your headphones. I searched for that thing like it was my child. I was, Where is it? And I'm looking for it, and I'm with my phone like a detective. And, and it was actually right where it kept telling me it was, but I didn't believe it. It's like, it's not there. I know it's not there. And finally it was there. And after this search of like moving pillows and stuff, I could sense the Holy Spirit say, why don't you search for me like that? Ooh. 
I'm still chewing on it. Because I pray, I seek God, I read scripture. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying like you check off the box. He's saying after you pray, after you seek God, after you live for him, are you hungry? Are you longing? He says if you are, he promises satisfaction. And this promise is very clarifying because it tells us where you and I The only sure place we'll find satisfaction in this life is in hungering and thirsting for God. I've known people that have spent tons of money on vacations and come back exhausted, buy homes and it doesn't scratch the void, uh, get promotions and they're still empty. Oh, the world will have us chasing all these things and promise us you'll be satisfied in this relationship. You'll be satisfied when you finally have a family. You'll be satisfied when you have kids. And all of those things are good, but they're not eternal. They don't ever fully satisfy. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When you look at the original language, what comes to the surface is that this is not a single act of mercy. Because for a moment there, I got a little excited. Like, oh yeah, I'm merciful every now and then. Actually, no, it's not a single act. It's, it's a continuous state of extending mercy. It's not trying to be merciful once in a while or when you remember to be merciful and then we kind of throw a parade for ourselves. No, this speaks of having your heart bent toward mercy. Your heart bent toward being merciful, that it becomes who you are. It becomes your inclination. Think about when situations arise, whether it's at work or in relationships, or when you feel wronged and you feel something wrong has happened. Think about how often our first reaction is not mercy, it's judgment. I'm done. No more. They need to pay. But think about what's our first reaction when we are in need of mercy. Say, please, Jesus, one more chance. Please know my heart. It's been said that we often judge people by their actions, but we want them to judge us by our motives. Jesus calls us to be merciful. Perhaps some coworkers are coming to mind, or some family members, or some neighbors, or some people that you read about in the news that you know or you don't. Jesus goes on, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is one of the more interesting ones of these Beatitudes, because if you actually study other passages of the Bible, the human heart is like the least flattered thing in the Scriptures. Actually, what the Bible says about the human heart is not politically correct. It's not what we want to hear. It's not 
the common posture that we have in our society. Do you know what the scriptures talk about when it describes your heart and my heart, the human heart? It doesn't say it's altruistic. It doesn't say it has the best intentions. It doesn't say that you should always trust it. How many have ever heard that statement? Just trust your heart. Trust your heart. Wow, no, don't do that. Because actually, if you read Scripture, you'll, you'll find out very quickly that the heart, God describes it as incredibly deceitful. Perhaps you haven't thought about that for a while, but inside of you is one of the most monstrous liars the world has ever seen. Inside of you, not over there, in here. That's what God describes our hearts like. And yet here, Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How could this heart become pure? see, because the heart is the, is the symbol for the inner state. We tend to think of our hearts just as our emotions, but actually when you look at Scripture, when it speaks of the heart, it speaks of emotions, but it speaks of the mind as well. It's implied. It speaks of your will. And so it's all-encompassing. And so Jesus is saying when you have a pure heart, he's, he's not talking about just one corner of your life. He's actually saying to have a pure heart is the totality of your inner being. To be pure. Now, if you're hearing that and saying, oh, yeah, absolutely, that's me. I'm pure of heart. Finally, someone is recognizing it. Thank you, Jesus. I came to church today. People all around me have not been recognizing the purity of my heart. But the Lord God Almighty this morning has said, you have a pure heart. If that's how you're hearing it, oh, Lord, please receive prayer later. That... None of us should be feeling haughty at this moment if we're honest. If we really look inside. Could you imagine if the thoughts of our hearts were displayed on a screen for everybody to hear and read? I tell you now, you, you guys would fire me in an instant. Like, I know. I don't think you and I have the capacity to understand grace to the depths of how ugly our hearts could be. And Jesus says, the promise of a pure heart is that you will see God. You'll see God. You'll know God. You'll see him where others can't see him. You'll be in communion with him. You'll walk with him. But he doesn't stop there. This next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I want you to notice something Jesus didn't say. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. It's a big difference because someone who's a peacekeeper is someone who just wants to keep the peace. You don't argue with me, I won't argue with you. Someone who's a peacekeeper stays away from uncomfortable conversations because why? Just want to keep the peace. 
Right now, I know you don't want to think about it, the summer's here, but there is a peacekeeping moment on all of our horizons. It's called Thanksgiving. It's coming up, and you know that most of the strategy is, how can we just get through this dinner keeping peace? Oh, please, uncle so-and-so, don't bring that up. Oh, don't say that. Don't, please, let's just get through it. Dessert, hurry up, dessert, eat it, eat it. Put your jacket on. We made it through, successful. Like, we want to keep the peace at work in all these different situations. But Jesus says, peacemakers are the ones that are blessed. And when we look at our world and our lives, we need peacekeepers for sure, but we need peacemakers. See, a peacemaker creates peace from unruly situations. We don't run from the hard topics and the difficult conversations. We go into them with the intention of creating peace. If we look at our lives and our worlds, it's incredibly divided. And the peace, many people are trying to live in is just essentially keeping silent. But that's not peace. Making peace requires the ability to talk to people with a humble and open heart, finding common ground, praying for one another through confusion and difficult conversations. How many people have difficult conversations and at the moment of difficulty, you're like, oh, I'm done. Well, I guess I have one less friend, uh, one less church. One, it, we're just done because the thought of engaging. But actually, Jesus says the blessing is in people going into those states of confusion and difficulty with a mindset of love. There's blessing in that. The eighth and ninth Beatitudes, I'm going to talk about them together because there's a very similar thread in them. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the first blessing speaks of suffering at the hands of people in power. They have the ability to persecute you. The establishment coming after you for your beliefs. This is a suffering for righteousness sake. I've met many Christians over the years and say, I'm being persecuted at the job because of my faith. And the reality is, you're probably not. You're probably thinking it's persecution, but they're probably mistreating you or treating you differently because you're probably not a great coworker. <laughs> oh, it's persecution. No, maybe you're being difficult. My wife is persecuting me. My husband's persecuting me because of my faith. Maybe you're being judgmental. Jesus is saying it's a per you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not you're persecuted because you don't know how to manage your personality. But he doesn't stop there. There's a blessing that's in store for those who suffer falsely because of his account, for his sake, for his message, for following him. And I love the fact that Jesus puts that front and center, saying there's a blessing, 
But the reality is, if you're going to follow me, you will be disliked in this world. If you and I have the goal of being liked, then we will stop following Jesus into hard places. Because there are many things that Jesus says that the world does not like. And if you actually lift up that message, however loving you may lift it up, you won't be liked. If you want to be liked, drive an ice cream truck. Everybody likes that guy. When the, when the music is off, of course. It's the number one complaint in 311 in New York City. Number one. Even above crime. It's hysterical. Shut Mr. Softy off. Jesus says there's a blessing for those who are persecuted for his sake. And when that happens, he says we should rejoice. Rejoice. But here's why we didn't start this sermon in the first blessing, the first beatitude. Because actually, without understanding the first one, all the rest of them can't be fully applied to our lives. Every single beatitude after the first one, after you understand the foundation of the first one, makes sense. Here's the first beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts this sermon with his beatitudes. He starts saying, blessed are those who recognize that they are insufficient in and of themselves that you don't have what it takes, that you recognize you and I are spiritually bankrupt on our own, that we need God. We need God. God is not just a nice additive to our life. If we get to it, he, he doesn't just make us more adjusted. No, we need him. We are drowning without him. And so, in other words, if you try to achieve everything that Jesus is saying without first wrestling with the first one, without... then you will go at the Beatitudes and these commandments for his disciples through willpower and and self-effort, and more than likely, you and I will find ourselves looking more like the Pharisees than looking like disciples of Jesus. We'll become self-righteous, arrogant, prideful, condemning. But to the ones who say, I can't do this on my own, but only God... Jesus says, to them, the kingdom is theirs. If you and I look at these beatitudes and and have that experience of, I got this, then we're missing the first beatitude. We're missing the invitation to declare our poverty, our lack, our insufficiency. I love what Martin Luther talked about about this passage. He said that the Sermon on the Mount shows the non-Christian that we can't please God on our own. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it shows those who don't follow Jesus the impossibility of following through with these commandments on our own. Another writer and thinker says, the law sends us to Christ to be justified, and Christ sends us to the law to be sanctified. And so John Stott said, about Luther. He says he's even more clear about the second purpose of this sermon. Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and in a state of grace. And so this whole sermon, in fact, 
presupposes an acceptance of the gospel, an experience of conversion, a new birth, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It describes the kind of people reborn Christians are or should be. So the Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows, not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace upon those in whom he's working such character. And so for those of us, if Jesus has raised you from spiritual death, breathed his life in you, given you the spirit, then you have the prerequisites to read the Sermon on the Mount as a guide for how you and I should live. Again, not a reward for our merit, but a gift of grace. I can't think of a better way for us to truly reflect on the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes than by ending our time in communion. If I could invite you to stand to your feet with the elements of communion in hand. If you came in today and weren't able to grab one of the elements, if you could just raise your hand and someone will come by and give you that. Just keep your hand up, they'll come by very shortly. First Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. With the bread in hand. Lord Jesus, thank you for your broken body, your sacrifice. That scripture tells us by your wounds we are healed. We thank you for healing our relationship with you through your broken body. We couldn't heal this relationship on our own. You did it, and we receive it, and we thank you receive the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood, your sacrifice that atones for our sin. It's in your sacrifice and faith in what you have done that we find freedom from guilt, from shame, that we experience peace with God the Father. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Could I invite us to raise our hands in a posture of worship and prayer as the worship team leads us over these next few moments. The prayer team is in the back to my right and your left, and they would love to pray with you regarding anything you're going through, any of the words that were shared earlier. You can slip out of your seat in these next few moments and receive prayer. Let's direct our hearts to the Lord. Let's worship him together at this time. Christ is my first. 